Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Aquadox, the podcast that keeps you up to date on all things aquatic medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Greenfield. I'm really excited about this episode because we're going to be expanding on the concept of production animals. Vet school curriculum typically covers production animal care, supply chains, and industry concerns for cattle, swine, and poultry. However, something that we talk a lot less about as vets are those same industry concerns for seafood. So today we're going to be talking with Dr. Stephen Frattini, the founder of Seafarm, a seafood veterinary practice that attempts to develop a new integrated approach to seafood health that incorporates animals, humans, and the environment. Hey, Stephen, welcome to the show. Hey, Michelle, it's great to be here today. So a seafood veterinary practice, what exactly is seafood medicine? Yeah, I, I get that question a lot. Usually veterinary medicine isn't defined by the food type, but at Seafarm, we really take seafood medicine to be the entirety of the seafood production cycle, all the way from capturing fish or growing them in a farm setting through the processing and then all the way out to ultimately to the consumer. And we really feel that veterinarians can play critical roles all throughout that supply chain. So seafood medicine is obviously a very small niche within the larger field of veterinary medicine and even aquatic medicine. How did you find yourself getting involved in that? Yeah, it is very niche. I haven't really met too many other veterinarians that describe themselves the same way. I feel I'm a little unique in that regard, but really I came to this particular understanding of seafood medicine basically because as I was going through veterinary school and trying to figure out you know, what it is that I love in the profession, I really fell in love with fish and invertebrate medicine. And I had to figure out how I might apply that in the future. I was also very focused during my time at Cornell in dairy production, basically as a surrogate for fish production. And that's where I started to understand that when you learn about food animals or animals that provide food like dairy cows, you learn a lot more than just about the cows and how to keep the cows healthy. You learn about the milking process, the milking equipment, how the milk gets transported, how to keep the milk safe and of high quality. And as I went through veterinary school and then you know, a couple of years after, as I was starting my, my own practice, I decided that that's the route I wanted to go. I wanted to look at seafood broadly, but really build my skill set in the health management of the animals. So to those ends, I've really been trying my best to learn more about the seafood industry very generally. I work with some colleagues so I can understand seafood safety better, how the consumer interacts with the seafood itself, basically how to create the most efficient and highest quality product that you can from the beginning to the end. And I think that when you put all of that together, you have something that's a little bit different than your traditional fish or invertebrate medicine. You have something that, as we're discussing, I call seafood medicine. So let's dive a little bit deeper into your business, Seafarm. You started that a few years ago, correct? Yeah, we founded the company in 2014. So what is the mission of Seafarm? Well, we have a mission statement. The mission of Seafarm or the Center for Aquatic Animal Research and Management, is to better the world through the management of aquatic animal disease, research and development, and education and outreach. We see it as an imperative to act locally and globally in the interests of aquatic animal health, environmental conservation, and social justice. So 
all of that is to say the mission of this veterinary practice extends beyond just the health management of animals that are in our care. We do believe that in order for seafood to really enter its next phase, to be a less disintegrated industry and be more integrated, we have to really take into consideration environmental impacts. Generally, people use the term sustainability, and we need to consider the human component to all of this. And that stretches all the way from our moral view of the production of fish or even the consumption of seafood, all the way out to the way that seafood production impacts at-risk communities, whether those be communities that don't have access to seafood, or if these are communities that are producing the seafood under particularly dire labor conditions, things like that. So the mission here really is to attempt to integrate the industry on the back of the ideals that we all learn about in veterinary medicine. Wow, that's a really inspiring mission. Can you explain to our listeners how that translates into the sorts of projects that your team engages with? Sure. Our mission being what it is, we are trying to develop a couple core competencies within the practice. One is obviously going to be what we would traditionally see as aquatic animal, you know, fish and invertebrate, medicine and diagnostics. So we're trying to grow our client base and grow the amount of individuals that we interact with that are actually producing seafood. They're actually engaged in those types of things. And to that end, it's our intention to be able to offer leading edge diagnostics, molecular diagnostics, bacterial identification, isolation, all the basic stuff that you learn about, right? Necropsy services. We partner with some other groups to get our histologies done and things like that. We bit off a lot more than we could chew, that's for sure. But we are trying to work with other groups to outsource some of the other aspects. So that's one, right? We're trying to really be you know, one of the leading groups in aquatic animal health management here in the United States. The other thing that we're trying to do on the more human side of things, we've been collaborating with a number of other individuals, especially from New York Sea Grant, on trying to develop a method or a process to bring more people into the fold, right? In an attempt to integrate the industry. So one of the things that we did early on was develop what we call the New York Seafood Summit. And we've run it for about five years. And that's a meeting that we hold down in New York City. And we invite stakeholders from all aspects of the seafood supply chain, producers, fishermen, fishmongers, processors, people that work with food waste, people that work with food deserts, so areas where communities can't get access to high-quality food, especially seafood. And what we do is we bring them all together for what has been a, an afternoon worth of a meeting. People are given a chance to talk about what they're doing in the space. And we kind of use that to compile what we and New York Sea Grant are going to try to focus on for the upcoming year. And it's also an opportunity for people to come together and discuss problems or issues or just dreams and aspirations that they have. We also invite chefs and restaurateurs. We generally have food that's prepared by you know, seafood chefs. We get donations from either fishermen or oyster farmers or things of that nature. So we can even at the meeting showcase some of the quality of the, of the New York food. So that's a meeting that we've been running for a number of years in person. This coming year, we have scheduled to do it February 22nd to the 26th. This year, it's going to be free. It's going to be a whole week. 
And what we're going to have is on Monday through Thursday, we'll have keynote speakers talking in about different aspects. We'll have aquaculture, processing. We might have some, some government folks talking about regulatory issues. And then we're going to have panel discussions on the Friday. We're hoping to have some videos and vignettes of tours, maybe of farms, maybe of the Fulton Street fish market. A lot of this is still kind of up in the air, but one of the hopes is that we can actually turn this into a more New York centric seafood event over the years. And this will be our, our first attempt at that. And so far we've made a lot of connections, both in our company and throughout the supply chain to try and you know really better the lot of the New York seafood entrepreneur or even the established seafood purveyors of New York. The summit sounds great, but why focus on New York? That's a great question. One of the interesting things about New York, and you'll hear this very often when you're dealing with startup aquaculture projects, is that New York has a very vibrant seafood community in the sense that it's well-established, it's very large, there's a lot of culinarians that are very adept at preparing seafood, and there's a, a historical culture of, of consuming seafood in New York. So what you hear very often is that if we can put our farm close enough to a consumption center, we're not going to have a problem selling seafood into it. The other thing about New York is that we not only border the ocean and, and Long Island and have the Hudson River and have the Great Lakes, we also have a tremendous amount of inland water in New York. So what we're noticing in New York is that the seafood culture is also regional. And because of that, the seafood production is also regional. So you have a lot of oysters on Long Island. You have a lot of wild catch fishermen on Long Island. You still have some fishermen in the Hudson River, not as many as there once were. You have a lot of producers that are growing fish either in recirculation aquaculture in the middle of the state. You have a lot of people that are still involved in pond-based aquaculture. We have a very robust hatchery system for recreational fishing. And we have the formerly renowned Great Lakes fishing, which doesn't really support a, uh, an industrial fishery anymore, but it's part of the heritage. So all of that taken together, the experience that New York and New York City have with seafood and the breadth of the types of production that exist in the state make it a great model for the rest of the country because it's not likely that we're going to be producing one species in New York state. And we're already not. We're going to have marine fisheries and marine aquaculture. We're going to have shellfish invertebrates, probably going to have more aquatic plants in the marine environment. And then as you go upstate and towards the Great Lakes, you're going to start seeing a diversity of freshwater species that are going to be existing. So New York, not only because this is where we are and this is where we live and, and these are the people that we know, but also because I really do believe that it is a great model for the rest of the country because I don't see the United States being a monoculture country. We're going to be raising all types of different fish all over the country, you know, depending on both regional tastes and on the ability of particular species to really thrive in, in different environments. So one of, the, one of the other things that we devised and then actually implemented was a, a training program. So in, in collaboration with my colleague at New York Sea Grant, we developed what we call the fish to dish program. It's a training in, in what I call integrated seafood science. And what we did was we were able to get a grant. And what we did was we put together a program where we took students, mostly in college or just out of college. It was a competitive process. And we put them out at different industry partners throughout the state. 
We had some at a recirculation aquaculture facility, an oyster farm, a fish smokehouse. One was working with a potential offshore aquaculture facility. One also worked with a fisherman who also is a, a processor himself. And they spent the entire summer working with that industry partner, basically as an employee. And then every weekend we brought those students together, round out their education. So every weekend for the summer, we would get together and talk about either aquaculture or commercial fishing or processing and food safety, business planning uh, and management. And then we had them present their final posters for their experience at the Riverhead Aquarium out in Riverhead, Long Island. That program we ran for one year. We're looking for more funding to try and do it again. We got good feedback from both the industry partners and from the students. So we felt that it was really a, a pretty brilliant success. And that kind of proved to us that the educational component, or, or better to say that the education of someone who wants to get involved in seafood should be probably be more multifaceted than it is myself coming to it as a veterinarian and trying to look at it as more of a food system, the way veterinarians look at food systems, allowed me some perspective. And also my colleague who has training in both aquaculture and food science, we felt that we had a very broad set of experiences in the space and that this type of education can better prepare students to enter the seafood workforce. And it also addressed some of the issues that the industry partners brought up with us, mainly that a lot of students that come out of very specific education programs don't have the breadth of experience really required to kind of jump into the industry. Well, that's certainly been my experience in vet school. We talk a lot about production animals, including poultry, cattle, and pigs, but fish seem to be comparatively overlooked. How do you combat that view? Well, try to answer it through a little bit about my background, but I, I do recall that in you know, the early 2000s, when I was in vet school, you did hear from people quite often that aquaculture was going to be the animal production of the future, and we need more veterinarians in that space. And we heard it quite often. I don't know if it was at the time the right thing to say because the opportunity was there, but the kind of financial will and investments and projects were not. We were still very limited in this country to kind of the big three would be catfish, trout, and shellfish, you know, mostly oysters. Some people are going to say, well, I know about a salmon farm here or a sturgeon farm there or whatnot, but there's, there's not that many of them. And there weren't that many of them. Now there's considerably more. There's a considerably more investment in the space. We're seeing a lot more large farms, different species, a lot of large salmon farms coming online in Maine and Florida and places like that. But the comments that I heard back then are probably the comments that we should be hearing today. Now, how are we trying to change that? We're trying to change that two main ways. One, we're trying to be involved with the veterinary schools that are close and local to us. We're trying to continue to push our education program. And we're also trying to work from the veterinary perspective. I'm a member of the American Association of Fish Veterinarians. And I'm also the chair of the committee called Seafood and Aquatic Agriculture. And within that space, we have discussions about where you know, fish veterinarians or aquatic veterinarians that are focused on food animals fall. And we're trying to push to have more veterinarians involved in the various aspects of fish production or the seafood supply chain. Problem being, veterinarians have not historically been involved in that space. So the few of us that are 
are kind of out in the wilderness a little bit. So to get that industry buy-in been difficult over, over the years, not only for me, but some of my colleagues that have been in the industry for a longer period of time. I think if we're going to choose to use the word combat, I would be a little bit hesitant because I don't think that right now we're in a position where our part of the profession is viewed as important as the other terrestrial animal agricultural industries. So it's difficult. It's difficult to convince a group to add to their curriculum however many hours should really be devoted to fish production systems, of which there are many. There's probably more types of fish production than there are any of the other animal protein industries out there. And that has to do with the, the breadth of the species, the types of conditions that they get raised in. So it's difficult. A lot of us feel that our, some of our colleagues don't view us as equal. And I don't blame them to a degree because we haven't been involved in our food industry for quite as long. But one of the important things that all vet schools should be doing is taking stock of what animal production is today. And what do you really think critically, what do you critically think animal production is going to be tomorrow, five years, 10 years, 20 years? I don't think they were doing that back in the early 2000s. I think, they would, I think these were just some talking points from people who were peripherally involved or peripherally heard about where, where aquaculture was going. And maybe the way that it was going in other parts of the world where it is more advanced and it is more ingrained that if you're going to run a, a fish production company, you're going to have to have some health experts involved. So Stephen, you talk about an integrative approach. Can you walk us through that? Sure. This is also something that over the last couple of years I've been learning about. So basically in the seafood industry, you have to get the animal out of the water and ultimately you've got to get it over to someone's plate. And that seems simple enough. You know, we've been doing it for hundreds, if not thousands of years. How do you do that? Well, you put a bunch of people on a boat and you send them out into the ocean or you send them out into a lake. They drop something tasty into the water or they drag a big, huge net and they grab up the animals and then they bring them to the dock. And then what happens once they get to the dock? People don't generally eat a whole fish, guts and eyes and all. So something has to happen to that animal. I'll take a step back too and talk about what happens if you're growing the animal. Kind of the same thing. You have to start with either juveniles or you have to have broodstock and you have to take these animals through the appropriate life stages, uh, depending on what species you have. You have to keep them safe. You have to keep their environment healthy. You have to monitor their health and you have to be able to intervene when something that may critically alter any of those things is, is imminent. So you have to get the animals to survive through whatever life stages they need to survive through so that you can ultimately take them out of the water and get them either into the trucks or the coolers and then land them on the dock, right? But what do you have in both of those two instances, right? You have some cold dead fish. And again, most people aren't eating just whole cold dead fish. Think about your own experiences with seafood. So what's next, right? Where do they have to go next? Generally, they have to go somewhere and get processed. Now that processing can be all kinds of things. They can be fish fabricators, which is kind of, the, I've learned the kind of the culinary term. So someone either has to hand fillet them, of which there is still a lot of hand filleting going on in the industry. A lot of automation is also there, uh, but there's still a lot of hand filleting. That can happen at a processing facility. It may happen with the chef themselves, but the fish has to get processed. 
the fish may get value added. The fillets may be soaked in something tasty and then vacuum packed so that when you throw them on the grill or in your oven, that's all you have to do is cook that piece of fish. They may be smoked. They may be pre-cooked even, right? And then all you have to do is kind of reheat them or you know, prepare them in, in the way that you prefer. So they have to get processed. Then they have to go from the processing to where someone else is going to take them probably another step. Most people don't go to the fish processor to pick up their fish. So they got to get somewhere. So they either got to go into the, the wholesale or the retail market. The wholesale market would be something similar to what you see you know, on TV when you got forklifts going everywhere and you got thousands and thousands of, of pounds of fish and you got all these guys uh, in, in the cold houses and they got, they got all, their, all their rubber suits on and everything. And from that point, those fish may go out directly to a restaurant, some places the consumer can go to, but generally those places service some type of middleman. Those seafood purveyors then will take the fish to whoever they go to next. So if you're driving around New York and you see lots of little refrigerated trucks that say eat more seafood, they're another step in getting that fish ultimately to someone's plate. Then you have the retail environment also. Probably the area I'm, I know the least about, but the, the retail environment is interesting too because you have large purchasers that are probably not going to places like the Fulton Street Fish Market and purchasing the fish. They're probably purchasing fish directly, have some of their own fabrication, maybe some of their own processing. But then that's how the fish get up into your seafood counter at your local supermarket. And then you can purchase them there. And then you can go ahead and prepare them however you want and, and eat them. But we do know that Americans don't eat quite as much seafood as some other countries. So there's a bit of a fall off there. There's some disconnect between the American consumer and their association with going to the store and buying the food themselves. The other way that the food gets into the consumer's mouth is through the restaurants, right? Through the restaurant tours, through the culinarians, through the chefs, through the hotels, wherever they're staying, you know, where they think seafood is a specialty product and I'm going to eat, I'm going to eat it today and it's going to be prepared well. So that's also important to understand. It's also important to understand that the culinarians have their own opinions about the best product, the best preparation, but they're also great champions for seafood because they're very trusted by the consumer themselves. And then all the way at the very end, we've taken this, this long process to get this food into someone's mouth. You have the mouth and you have the brain attached to the head that the mouth is also attached to. And that's the consumer. There is all kinds of interesting information out there about what the American consumer thinks about seafood. And anecdotally, one of the most interesting things to me is that when I was in veterinary school and I was having a conversation about something like farmed seafood with friends or contemporaries, a lot of people would say, I only eat wild caught fish. But if you fast forward a number of years, that sentiment in the same kind of demographic has changed. And I hear people without being baited, pun intended, to make the statement, they say, I eat farm-raised fish because I think it's more sustainable, environmentally friendly, healthier. But people's psychology around where the fish come from has changed in a relatively short period of time. And I can tell you from the time I've spent at like industry meetings is that even the industry is being a little bit slow to catch on to that. They still hold a lot of meetings. How do we get millennials to eat more seafood? Or how do we get them to change their opinion about things like farm fish? And I think that if we ignore the consumer from a veterinary perspective, mind you, that we're ignoring a very large part of that whole 
seafood supply chain. Now, that was pretty complicated. There was a lot of moving parts to get the cold dead fish into someone's mouth. But you have all these other supporting industries around it. We didn't even talk about the logistics, the shipping that's required, the management of the cold chain, all the way from the cold fish to your mouth. You know, fish deteriorate very quickly. So to move fish, even relatively short distances, where you don't have the appropriate you know, cold chain, can be, it can be very difficult. And a lot of groups that are actually very close to consumption centers have a lot of difficulty that sometimes they don't plan for, which is one of the things that we try to work with groups to help them understand. You also got to feed these animals. So you have aquaculture feed industry out there that, that's tremendous. So let's forget just general aquatic animal health. Let's think about aquatic animal nutrition, you know, things like that. So as you can see, the amount of time that would need to be dedicated in a veterinary curriculum to the seafood industry from the fish to the dish is quite large. This is really interesting. And I think if this material were to be added to a veterinary curriculum, sounds like we've got a name already made for the course, linking the fish to the dish. Oh, that'd be great. We're more than willing to come out and talk about it. Well, I would definitely take it. <laughs> I appreciate it. So when I was looking on your website, this term aqua ethics caught my eye. Could you talk a little bit more about that? One of the important things for me is that we begin to really wrestle with and own the welfare aspects of not only fish production, but, but fish consumption. The idea out there that aquaculture and next generation seafood companies are, are going to be something new and different than what we've already dealt with, I think is a little bit odd. We've dealt with a lot of animal welfare issues as humans for a long time, from the dawn of the animal cruelty laws in the United States, you know, the way we treat lab animals, the way we treat swine, gestation crates and things like that, the way that we house and, and manage poultry flocks, the way that cow comfort is being addressed both at the veterinary and an industry level. All of these things have allowed those industries to make not only production gains, but gains in the eye of the consumer. So it's not to welfare wash the, the industry and say, yes, we take welfare into consideration. So you should trust that our products are well cared for, wholesome and had good lives. That to me would be the wrong thing to do. I think the right thing to do is for us to critically engage in the discussions about what our moral responsibility is to animals that ultimately become seafood. And I think it's important that we begin to view them individually, especially those of us that work with them, you know, to view them individually, but maybe treat and manage them as a group, which is very difficult in the fish space. And it's going to take a sea change. That's another fish pun in the way that we view them to get there. When a cow is sick, you go out there and you, you help it, you know, you do what you can to help it. When a single fish is sick in a production system, you may not necessarily be able to do that. That's not necessarily something that we can do, right? But it doesn't mean that we can't view them the same way. And because we haven't really struggled with that, we end up doing some things that I think are a disservice to the industry, which is to simply equate good husbandry with good welfare and say that because we know the science, we know what's good for them, 
that totally ignores our responsibility. It ignores our feelings. It ignores the consumer's feelings. It ignores potentially the producer's feelings about what they're doing. And I think if you try to push welfare without morality, I, I don't really know what you're doing. But to those ends, one of the things that we're really trying to do is really critically investigate what's happening on farms. What are the sentiments of some of the people that actually work with the animals on a day-to-day -day basis? Some of them may not understand that making sure that the, the water is of the highest quality, that the, the fish are not being easily startled, that certain life stages may require certain parameters, right, for the fish to kind of be in a more natural state. A lot of producers are already doing these things. They don't always equate those activities with being welfare activities. And I think we've done a very poor job of tying this all together and telling the story of our relationship with these animals. So that what that does is that opens up the industry and the vets included to, you know, some of this pretty, you know, vile ridicule about how terrible it is, how terrible we are. And that doesn't make me feel good because I do believe that there are people out there that really, really do care and are doing the best. But there's a lot more to learn too. There's a lot more to learn about the behavior of the animals, what really may be best for them. And if we don't start looking at fish welfare from a moral perspective, we, we run the risk of you know, basically being sidelined in the discussion and the debate surrounding what is best for them. How can we as veterinarians play a role in making sure that they're allowed to live their best lives? Well, those are some really important questions that you just posed. And I know you gave me more to think about, and I'm sure you gave our listeners some good things to think about too. I hope so. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, Michelle, thank you very much for the opportunity to come and speak on Aquadocs. Look forward to following your career as it progresses, and hopefully we'll get to talk again. Absolutely. Maybe we'll have you on again right after the New York Seafood Summit this spring. That'd be great. And before we leave you, here's this week's Species Spotlight. The Atlantic petrel is classified as endangered on the IUCN Red List. This bird species only breeds on Go Island located in South Atlantic Ocean and feeds mainly on squid, fish, and crustaceans. The main threat to this species is the introduction of an invasive mouse to Go Island. Conservation actions to remove the mice from the island have been proposed, but until actions are taken, the population is sadly likely to continue declining. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of Aquadox. If you enjoyed listening to Dr. Stephen Frattini this week and other podcast favorites such as Dr. Jesse Sanders, I highly recommend that you check out the American Association of Fish Veterinarians virtual conference happening this Thursday and Friday. And if you can't make it live, no worries. If you register, you'll have unlimited access to the recorded presentations for an entire year. Registration is still open and I've posted the conference link in the episode comments. I'd like to thank Dr. Stephen Frattini for being on the show this week, as well as thank all of you, our wonderful listeners, for tuning in. As always, check out our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest Aquadox news. And if you got an extra minute, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find the show. I'm Michelle Greenfield. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you next time here on Aquadox. <laughs>